Well, Matthew 22 is our passage. I read it earlier. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. As always, before we go to the Word, we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now to this blessed moment of our service where we open Your Word together, we read Your Word together, and together we hear Your Word preached. We pray that You would bless for Your people in this moment the preaching, the Word of God. Bless our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Speak to each one of us in the way that You would desire to speak. Touch our hearts in the way that You would touch our hearts. Touch our minds in the way that You would touch our minds. And conform us as always through the sanctifying power of your word and in the power of the spirit conform us into the image of Christ help us to look like Jesus as we seek to be faithful to him and witnesses to him in this world and all this we ask in Jesus name amen so i think one thing that most people can agree on is that our name carries a lot of weight in this world. When people hear our name, for good or for bad, they have certain preconceived notions about what they're going to get when we show up. We have a lot of teachers in the room, retired teachers in the room too, so y'all be honest, y'all always had a student that the next year was coming up, and you heard the name, and you said, oh boy, it's going to be a good year. And you didn't mean good when you said good. Or you have the situation, maybe a few years after that, when you get the sibling, right? The, the younger one. And you say, oh boy, it's come around again. It's going to be another good year. Sometimes it may be a reputation of our own making. Sometimes it may be a reputation that is generations in the making, well, such and such got in trouble. Well, are you surprised? Look at who his daddy was. And look at who his granddaddy was. Or maybe it's the other way around. Such and such just finished med school. And you say, well, is it any surprise? Look at who his family was. And look at what his upbringing was like. There's a lot to be said about a name. And there's a lot that a name says about us. This passage is about, ultimately, the name of Jesus. Not His actual name, of course, but His reputation. It's about His lineage. This marks, as verse 46 tells us, the end of the confrontations of Wednesday. Now, we're not done with Wednesday of the Passion Week. He launches from here right into the list of woes in chapter 23. So Jesus Himself is certainly not done with Wednesday. But this is the, the end, if you will, of the attempts to trap him by way of cunning and devious questions. He's about to stop their mouths for good. And he does it once again in a way that requires them to rebuke themselves in answering his own question to them. This is not, by the way, you know, the first time that Jesus has done this. If you go back to the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants back in chapter 21, this is exactly what he did. They did not realize uh, that he was talking about them. In both of those parables, he asked them questions. 
And the way that they answer the questions reveals something about them. For example, in 21 and verse 31, he's telling the parable of the two sons. One, uh, one son said he wouldn't do what the father asked and then went out and did it anyway. And the other son said he would do what the father asked and then did not go out and do it. And Jesus says, which one did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. And then he told them the parable of the tenants. These were the tenants uh, who were put in charge of the, uh, of the master's um, field. And then he sent his servants and they beat and killed the servants. He sent other servants. They beat and killed those servants. He sent his son. They beat and killed even the son. And he says in verse 40 of chapter 21, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they say to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then he rebukes them and says, Have you, ever, have you never read the Scriptures? Their answers there were a rebuke to themselves because they didn't see that they were the ones, the evil ones being pictured in the parable. And likewise here, he's going to ask a question again. And their answer to him is going to ultimately reveal uh, their hearts. They've been confronting him. They've been questioning him all day, all sorts of questions from all different angles. And it's been like watching a, a master swordsman duel against the likes of someone, I don't know, like me. This wouldn't be much of a challenge. They would, this master swordsman, if coming against me, would parry and dodge and make defending themselves against me look like child's play. And woe to me when they finally go on the attack, which is what Jesus does here all day, all these questions, all these attempts. And all it takes is one simple question from our Lord to finally silence them from this point forward. One question traps them in their own beliefs and in their own traditions. So let's start with that question. I call it, we did the great commandment last week. This week we have a great question. A great question. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? Now, as we all know, the single most important question that any person will ever have to answer is the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Or as Jesus said back in chapter 16 to the disciples, who do you say that I am? That is the most important question in the universe for the sinner to answer. Now, unlike back in chapter 16 when he was speaking to the apostles and Peter answered with that wonderful answer that he gives, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Unlike back then, he is not here talking to the disciples. He is talking instead to the Pharisees. And so notice the language that he's using here. He doesn't say, who do you say that I am? He just simply says, what do you think about the Christ. That's the language that he uses. Now we know that the term Christos, from which we get Christ, is just a, a direct transliteration from the Greek. The term Christos is the Greek parallel to the Old Testament Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. And so he's simply asking them, what do you think about the Messiah? 
whose son is the Messiah? So his question is not, at least in this particular moment, calling attention to himself as the Messiah. Instead, his question comes as just a general question to them about the Christ, about the Messiah. Whose son is the Messiah? It's a great question. And much like the questions that they've been asking Jesus on this day, it's a loaded question with a lot of implications depending on how you answer the question or depending on how you don't answer the question. Whose son is he? And so he gets his answer. And they said to him, the son of David. Who son, whose son is the Christ? And they answer him, he's the son of David. Now, that's not a bad answer. It's not a bad answer. In fact, it's not the wrong answer. The son of David was a term that had come to be associated with the Messiah, with the Christ. And it was rooted in Old Testament promises and it's rooted in Old Testament references to the promised coming Messiah. This answer is not wrong per se. Let me just show you, by the way, so you can understand the Old Testament reasons for referring to the Christ, for referring to the Messiah as the son of David. For example, number one, the title son of David is rooted in the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant we find in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel rather, chapter 7, where God makes a covenant with David. He's already made a covenant with Noah. He has made a covenant with Abraham. And now in the further expansion of the progress of Revelation, he will now make a covenant with David after David rises to the throne after Saul. And he tells to David in 2 Samuel 7, this is part of the covenant, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the Davidic covenant. We were just talking about this this morning before Sunday school in, in uh almost said the gospel of Isaiah, but in the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about uh, to you a, a son, to a virgin, a, a son will be born. And then in the next chapter, Isaiah has a son. And the, the Sunday school curriculum made the, made the point that there was an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, but there's also the future fulfillment of the prophecy. This is another one where we see this covenant with David being made that there will be an offspring after David, for example, that will build a temple and a house for my name. And some of this, we understand it to, to be immediately fulfilled, of course, within the context of David uh, having Solomon and Solomon being king. But some of this, we understand, is not fulfilled until the coming of the Messiah. I mean, obviously Solomon was born as an offspring of David and then he died and the sons of Solomon died and so forth and so on. But God promises that there will be one who establishes the throne of David forever. And this is understood to be a reference to the Messiah, 
who would come in the line of David, who would come in the bloodline of David and establish the Davidic throne forever. And so the Messiah had come to be referenced and referred to as the son of David. This is also referenced in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 89 says in verses 1 to 4, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. There it is again, a reference in the praise of the psalm to the lineage and the line of David being established forever. And then he says again down further in Psalm 89, down in verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter my word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. It's mentioned in Psalms of praise. It is also mentioned in the prophets themselves. Amos 9.11 In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is your righteousness. Mention Isaiah 7 and 8. Here's Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. All that to make the point, and there are others that we could go to perhaps, to make the point that the answer, He is the Son of David, isn't a wrong answer. He is the Son of David. He is in the line of David. So if it's not a wrong answer, then why does Jesus ask the question that He asks in verse 43? This seems to be a good and right answer. So why does his response in verse 43, and notice the response, how is it then? It sounds so much like a rebuke, doesn't it? It's a loaded question. It's a question that's intended to rebuke the recipient. He's the son of David. Well, then how is it that this can be true? Why does Jesus answer this way if their answer isn't wrong? And here's why. Their problem isn't that their answer was wrong. The problem is that their answer is incomplete. It's not that their answer is wrong. 
is that their answer is incomplete. Let me illustrate this for you. If I were to ask you the question, who wrote the book of Romans? There are a couple of different ways that you could answer that question and be right. But what you do say and what you don't say will reveal how you feel about the Scriptures. So imagine if we were talking to somebody who professed to be a Christian and we were talking about some book of the Bible and we said, well, who wrote the book? Let's say we were talking about the book of Romans and we say, who wrote the book of Romans? And they were to say, oh, that was a letter that was written by this guy named Paul way back in the first century. We know it's probably his writings because we have others of his writings in what we call the Scriptures and we can compare the languages and we can compare the vocabularies and we can compare the similar sentence structures and we can know that they're both basically authored by the same person. And so we know that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And that's all they say. What are you thinking? Does this person believe this is the Word of God or not? Their answer is not wrong, but it is incomplete. Paul wrote Romans. We understand that. But he's not the only one who wrote Romans. And he's not the most important person who wrote Romans. God wrote Romans. To say Paul did and leave it at that is to leave the answer incomplete. I saw an example of this on social media this past week. I actually posted it to my Facebook account, some, some supposed Christian feminist asked the question, show me anywhere in Scripture where Jesus rebuked a woman for false teaching. And so somebody quoted the letter in Revelation 2 where he rebukes Jezebel, the prophetess, for leading God's people astray. And that's actually the words of Jesus in Revelation. And her answer, Jesus didn't write Revelation. I mean, this is what liberal Christianity does. And we don't like what the Scripture has to say. We'll just say, well, God didn't say that. That's Paul there. That's, that's John there. That's James. That's not Jesus. Somebody quoted the verse right after that where it says these are the words of Jesus. And her response to that was, oh, I didn't know the context. I know the context. People do this kind of thing all the time. And it's the same issue here with the Pharisees' response to Jesus. Yeah, He's the Son of David. There's no disputing that as a title for the Messiah if you want to make that connection. But He's not only the Son of David. So once again, His questioning has forced them to reveal the state of their own hearts. Messiah, as I said, as the Son of David, was a popular teaching. But that's really as far as they got. Remember that... Even the disciples kind of fell into this sometimes, didn't they? The the expectation of what the Messiah would be. They expected Him to be a conqueror, political leader and a military ruler, someone who would free them from Roman oppression, someone who would obviously come and reestablish the earthly kingdom of Israel and reestablish the throne of David. They couldn't see past their expectations for the physical manifestation of the Messiah. And because of that, they are woefully lacking in what they believe about the Messiah. And therefore, they're woefully lacking in what they are looking for when they finally have the Messiah right in front of them. So darkened are their hearts by their own twisted and false teachings about Messiah that not long ago, Matthew 12, they had 
the nerve about a year before this encounter to credit his works with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They're lacking in what they believe about the Messiah. They, they can't get past their own preconception. At this point, by the way, I stepped back and I thought I need to ask this question because this does serve as a warning for us. And so I thought I need to ask this. Who do we think that Jesus is? And more to the point, do we construct our own understanding of Jesus or what we want Him to be like? Which Jesus do we serve and worship? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? Or is it the Jesus of our own imagination? It's a serious thing to consider. And it's easy to do. Which is why remaining rooted in the Scripture is so important for us as Christians. Because Scripture will constantly mold and shape the way that we think for us. It will will shape the way that we think about the world and it will shape the way that we think about God and it will shape the way that we think about Christ. It will keep us from constructing in our own minds falsehoods about Jesus so that we don't ask silly questions like, show me where Jesus ever rebuked a woman for false teaching. There's an arrogance to that statement. Like, really? Really? You got the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation memorized? You've looked at every nook and cranny before you asked that question? In a Twitter world where millions of people are going to see it? There's an arrogance to these kinds of things. Who do you say that he is? Their answer was lacking. They saw him only from the earthly physical expectation of Messiah. Which leads to this second question that Jesus brings into focus. From the great question that He first asked to the glorious reality that He now articulates for them. Listen to what Jesus says here. Notice what He's doing. He said to them, verse 43, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord. How is it, if He's only the Son of David, how is it that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord? And then He references the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls Him Lord, how is He His Son? You see Jesus' argument. It's clear as day. He absolutely obliterates all of their preconceived notions about the Messiah. Their preconceived notion was, He's the Son of David. Period. Done. There's nothing more to say. He's going to come. He's going to establish the throne again. He's going to free us from our oppressors. And He's going to be in the line and lineage of King David. And Jesus says, If that's all that He is, if all He is is merely a descendant of David, then how is it that David, when referring to this Messiah, calls Him Lord? That's a loaded question. You realize what He's saying. He is saying that Messiah is more than the son of David. 
He is saying that the Messiah is the Lord of David. Jesus refers here to Psalm 110, which had no dispute even in Jesus' day as being written by David himself. And in fact, it had no dispute and was already accepted and understood to have, even by the Pharisees, some of the clearest references to the Messiah in the entire Old Testament. So understand, Jesus doesn't just go to some obscure, little-known, tucked-away-in-the-folds-of-the-Old-Testament passage and say, have you not read this, this little tittle over here? Maybe you skipped over it in your reading. Maybe you skipped over it in your studies. Maybe you skipped over it in your memorizations. But there's this little piece over here in all this Old Testament revelation. No, he goes to one of the most well-known passages about Messiah. He says, you remember Psalm 110? Remember that? What David says, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus uses this passage from Psalm 110 to demonstrate that Messiah is not merely the son of David. He is also the son of God. How so? Psalm 110 references, or makes rather, three references to the divinity of the Messiah. There are three references in these brief, this brief sentence that make reference to to the divinity of the Messiah. This is reference number one. The Lord said to my Lord. That's reference number one. In the original Hebrew, it reads Yahweh, the covenant name of God, usually referencing uh, God the Father. Yahweh said to my Adonai. That's the play on words. It's two different terms. One invoking the covenant name of God and the other invoking the lordship of the one of whom he is speaking. Namely, the promised Messiah who is still to come, of course, when David wrote these words. And when David considers this coming Messiah and what has been promised to him, he refers to him as Adonai or Lord. And this is a term that is used of the Lord. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, and I've only got two references, but you can look up more if you would like, and I'll tell you how you can tell the difference. All throughout the New Testament, both of these words are used in conjunction with one another or interchangeably with one another when referring to God. For example, in Genesis 15:8, but he said, O Lord Yahweh, O Adonai Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is when Abram asks, how am I to know that I will possess what you've promised? And he calls him Adonai Yahweh. Or in Exodus 4.10, Moses says to Yahweh, O my Adonai, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And if you're ever reading the Old Testament, if you want to know whether you are seeing the word Yahweh or the word Adonai when you read the English word Lord, all you have to do is look at whether or not it's in all caps. The common way of translating into the English 
is to translate the name of God, Yahweh, with all caps, L-O-R-D-E in all caps. If you see that, you are seeing the name of God, Yahweh. If you see it like with what Abram says, O Lord God, the Lord is written normal, that's Adonai, and God is in all caps, O Adonai Yahweh. So that's how you can tell the difference. When you're reading your Old Testament, you know when you're seeing the name of God or the title of God. But the point is they're used interchangeably. And so when David makes this reference, and now that Jesus is making this reference, he says, David calls him Adonai. If he's simply the son of David, if he's simply a a bloodline descendant of David, why does he use a title that is used of God when referring to him? That's the first reference to the deity of the Messiah. The second reference is in what the Lord says to him. And the first thing he says is, sit at my right hand. This is Yahweh speaking to somebody. This is no small thing that Yahweh would say to someone, sit at my right hand. This is a mark of equality to sit at the right hand of somebody. It's why the disciples were fighting over who was going to sit by Jesus. To sit at someone's right hand was to share in their power, to share in their glory, to share in their honor, to share in their authority, to share in their majesty and in their beauty. God promises here that the Messiah will not stand even, but instead will come beside and sit at the right hand of the Father on high. And by the way, thank God that He does, because the New Testament connection to Him sitting at the right hand of the Father is what? This is where He participates in His high priestly ministry, making intercession for His people by His own blood and for their behalf, on their behalf. Sit at my right hand. Reminder of his absolute authority and sovereignty. So that's reference number two. And then reference number three to his divinity is how he concludes it. Until I put your enemies under your feet. Not only would the Messiah sit at the Father's right hand, but he will do so as he waits for the final consummation when all the enemies of God will be placed under his feet. This was a a common practice when you were a, a ruling king who had just conquered a people and had made your enemies your servants. They would bring in the rulers of the enemy. They would prostrate before you as the king and you would place your foot upon their head in sign of your sovereignty and authority over them. and in sign of their abjection and humiliation before you. And he invokes that imagery to say, I'm going to put his enemies under his feet. Notice, by the way, also the, the personal ownership of the enemies. God here doesn't say to the Messiah, I will put my enemies under your feet. But instead, he says, I'll put your enemies under your feet. In other words, all of the enemies of God are also the enemies of the Messiah in the same way. It's another reference to their equality, not just simply in terms of their authority, but in terms of their own enemies. And thusly to put an end to all evil and to vanquish the enemies of Yahweh is to also vanquish the enemies of his Messiah, the anointed one. 
This reference places the Messiah on equal footing with Yahweh Himself. As I said, in terms of His rank, in terms of His sovereignty, His power, His glory, His honor, and ultimately here, even His victory over His enemies. In fact, the book of Hebrews uses this text to demonstrate Jesus' superiority, not simply over David in the line of David, but even over the angels themselves. In Hebrews 1.13, he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Even above the angels does Jesus exist, which is part of the point of how Hebrews opens its argument. He is back up in the beginning of the chapter. He is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so Jesus is trying to get them to understand and see the point. He is not just the son of David, the Messiah. He is the son of God. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's saying to them, your answer is incomplete. It's not that it's wrong. We know from Matthew's own genealogy that Jesus comes in the line of David and therefore has the right to claim the Davidic throne. That's chapter 1 and verse 6 where David and Jesse are in the line of the Messiah. The problem is that with Messiah, we must press deeper into who He truly is. He is a man. He came incarnate. He took on human nature. But He is more than a man. He is God. And He is the Son of David. But He is more than the Son of David. He is the God of David. And therefore, we must receive Him as this. Or we have not truly received Him. The true light. Here's how John says it in John 1.9. Which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But who all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the call of how we should respond to this man who is called Christ, the Messiah. Here we don't find that response in verse 46, do we? This great reality and glorious reality that has been unfolded for them leads to a grievous response. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. His own questioning has stopped their mouths. They've been caught. They didn't have an answer. Would you have had an answer? You've been clinging to this messianic passage in Psalm 110. For perhaps your entire life as a Pharisee who would have known exactly what Jesus was referencing. And with a simple question, if He's only the Son of David, how is it then that David calls Him Lord? It's almost like those memes you see on the internet with the guys going, they don't have an answer. They didn't see the connection. This is a sad response. We are given no indication, either here in Matthew or in the other Gospels, that those who heard turned to repentance and faith. 
Mark does indicate that the crowds in general heard him gladly, but they've kind of been acting like that his entire ministry, and so that's not necessarily saying much. It's clear, by the way, that a crowd has gathered in the temple at this point. In fact, in verse 1 of 23, he says to the crowds and to his disciples, and so, you know, this isn't like Jesus talking with a few pockets of a couple of guys. This is Jesus talking to massive crowds in the main courts of the temple. Here we see the Pharisees continue to dig in their heels in their hatred and rejection of Him as the Christ. Which brings us back around to the question again. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? A moral teacher? A moral man? A good teacher? Great historical figure? Important to learn about in world history class? All of those are true, of course but they're incomplete. This is the Son of God. This is the one of whom John the Baptist spoke and prepared the way for, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Christ who bids us come. Submit your life, your heart, your mind, and your soul to this glorious reality and have life in His name. Let's pray. But Father, we do pray that you would help us to see the beauty of Christ, to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to submit all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls to the absolute reality of His power, of His sovereignty. All hail the power of Jesus' name that angels fall. And pray that you would help us. It's in our flesh that we rebel against you and against your word. Help us to submit to its goodness over us. Help us to submit to his power over us. In Jesus' name, amen.